Let me read to you from the New English Bible, chapter 22 of the Gospel according to Luke, beginning at verse 31 and reading selected verses through verse 60. Jesus is speaking in the upper room. You are the men who have stood firmly by me in my times of trial. And now I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. You shall eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones as judges of the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, take heed. Satan has been given leave to sift all of you like wheat. But for you I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have come to yourself, you must lend strength to your brothers. Lord, he replied, I am ready to go with you to prison and death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow tonight until you have three times over denied that you know me. Then he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, accompanied by his disciples. And when he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may be spared the hour of testing. He himself withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, Father, if it be thy will, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will but thine be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, bringing him strength. And in anguish of spirit he prayed the more urgently, and his sweat was like clots of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them asleep, worn out by grief. Why are you sleeping, he said. Rise and pray that you may be spared the test. While he was still speaking, a crowd appeared with the man called Judas, one of the twelve, at their head. He came up to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When his followers saw what was coming, they said, Lord, shall we use our swords? And one of them struck at the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered him, let them have their way. Then he touched the man's ear and healed him. And turning to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come to seize him, he said, Do you take me for a bandit that you have come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, and you kept your hands off me. But this is your moment, the hour when darkness reigns. And then they arrested him, and led him away, and they brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. And they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter sat among them, and a serving maid who saw him sitting in the firelight stared at him and said, This man was with them too. But he denied it. Woman, he said, I do not know him. A little later, someone else noticed him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said to him, No, I am not. About an hour passed, and another spoke more strongly still. Of course this fellow was with him, 
He must have been. He is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, a cock crew, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the Lord's words, Tonight, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Amen. May God add his blessing and his instruction to this reading from his word. I know that you're interested in who played the violin if you're here for the first time. That was Miss Estelle Brousseau. She teaches a Sunday school class in our church, is a professor of Bible at Montreat Anderson College, and is a very gifted and talented musician. She is accompanied also by a very great musician, our own organist and pianist, Tom Starwall. Now then, just to review a little bit. We have been studying, for the benefit of those of you who are visitors, the Lord's Prayer. We have found that uh, often we say the words to the Lord's Prayer without really uh, beginning to think through something of the depth of commitment that there should be in our lives and hearts and minds when we look at it. It's brief. It's simple. It's plural. We do not say, my Father, but we say, our Father. It's universal. It reaches out to all who know and love the Lord Jesus and who have been bought again by his blood. It's personal. It calls to God the Father in a very personal way for the things which we need. The things which we need in order to be honoring to him, to hallow his name by the way in which we live. So that when other people know us as Christians, they know that there is a dimension in our life that is yielded to the Lordship of God, and we seek to honor his name. We pray for the extension of his kingdom. This is not a political kingdom, but this is the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, who rules and reigns in the hearts and minds of men, who changes their dispositions. When one president or prime minister or governor or person in authority leaves, it's almost like one sinner going out and another sinner coming in and another bunch of sinners sitting in the place of judgment uh, to make in laws and other people live by them. But we pray for the coming of his kingly reign so that he rules over our conscience, over our mind, over our heart. And then we pray for the doing of his will, not our will, but his will. That was what was so deeply moving when I tried to read to you a moment ago those incredible, touching words from the gospel according to Luke of how Jesus in that upper room, realizing all of the penalty that had to be borne in order for us to be forgiven of our sins, knowing the cup which he had to drink of, and knowing what it meant that he who knew no sin was to become sin itself for us, so that we might be redeemed, knowing that he would be nailed to a cross and in dereliction cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken for us. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. He was forsaken for you and forsaken for me. 
and he was going to that cross. He knew that to follow him would be a task that would mean yielding our wills over to him. And so he wanted his disciples to understand that too. He realizes, of course, that day by day we exist. We need those things which are necessary for food and sustenance and not only that, but the things which make us peaceful inside, the love and the security that are necessary for us to have any measure of joy in living, a person to be happy in life or to have any measure of peace in life has to have someone to love, something to do, and is something to hope for. And if he does not have any of those three things, or if one of those three things are missing, other things go awry. And I think that's included in daily bread because it has to do with sustenance. It, it means that we are dependent upon God for all things. I look at the weather map and see that parched and arid region stretching across the Great Plains, the breadbasket of our country, and out into the southwest in Texas where we were a few weeks ago, and the very trying and difficult heat. All those great combines, all those huge farm machinery, uh, implements of farm machinery, are not any good unless the Father's will comes to bring us the rains that we need and we are dependent upon Him and so we pray to Him for what is necessary for our daily forgiveness. Coupled next to daily bread is something also that is necessary and that's the forgiveness of sins. We looked at it last Sunday. We tried to think for a few moments about how essential it is that we be forgiven our sins. We need forgiveness. But we cannot ask God to forgive us and then withhold forgiveness to someone else. So when we go to Him and ask for His forgiveness, we pass it on. We share forgiveness. It's not a bargain with God. But it is a forgiveness that he grants to us his grace which is which enables us to forgive others oh around 16 and 23 a long long time ago man actually was born in 1573 by the name of John Dunn D O N N E one of the greatest of all the elizabethan men of letters uh, John Dunn had been in his younger years uh, a playboy, licentious and evil in what he had done. And after he came to a faith in Jesus Christ and after he had gone into the ministry, he, of course, is that one who I, I can still remember very well. I'll never forget it, in fact, riding in the back of one of those rescue squad vessels when I was being hauled into the hospital with the sirens going, and uh, you know what occurred to me when I waked up? Never sin to know for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for thee. John Dunn wrote those words. 
He wrote those when he meditated on his own sickness. He was sick for a number of days. And during those days of sickness, he would hear the bells toll, uh, announcing the death of someone in that parish. And of course, the question would go out, who has died? And that's when he wrote those words, no man is an island entire of itself, but each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. In other words, we're tied in with others. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for thee. Well, he also wrote another very beautiful uh, little sonnet that has to do with the forgiveness of sins, and it's a pun on his name. Remember, his name is John Dunn. It's spelled D-O-N-N-E, uh, but it's pronounced Dunn. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive those sins through which I run and do them still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done. For I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I've spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Swear by thyself that at my death, thy son, S-O-N, thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. He knew that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there was the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness we accept from him and we ask him to enable us to pass it on to others. Last week I had a number of people call the church office because we'd spoken about resentments and hostilities that are unresolved and held back, which create all kinds of trouble. Psychiatrists are always dealing with this. One great general medicine doctor has said a half a dozen bitter words can absolutely stop the flow of pepsin in your digestive system. So we need to be careful what we say. We need forgiveness ourselves and we need to show other people the forgiveness and the love of God. But when we are forgiven, how are we going to keep on battling against sin? There are a great many uh, battles that we have to go through, but this is the one that comes down into our own heart. And our Lord Jesus is praying, lead us not into temptation. Let me say this, this uh, is sometimes apt to confuse people because we think of temptation almost uh, universally connected with sex or some uh, glamorous type of sin. Lust is always used in that word uh, way and actually it means strong desire and you can lust after cars or clothes or houses or flowers or anything else. Uh, it's, a, it's an inordinate desire. And uh, so when we pray that we uh, not be led into temptation. 
God is not leading us into temptation. Jesus is not praying to God, Father, lead us, and there again is the plural, not only me, but my friends too, uh, lead us not into temptation uh, in the sense of an enticement to sin. In the first chapter of James, James chapter 1, uh, James is going to tell us, let no man say when he is tempted, he is tempted of God. For God does not tempt us, that is, entice us into sin, into making a wrong judgment against him. That's not it. The devil does that. He is the tempter. Satan is the one who creates that desire to rebel against God. But there is another form of testing that comes too. And that testing has to do with the stresses that we go through in life. Now, we're made out of flesh and blood. And as a result of being made out of flesh and blood, all of us have to go through times of suffering. We go through times of real testing because things do not happen the way we had hoped for them to happen. Uh, we go through pain. We go through sickness. We go through the death and the loss of someone who is near and dear to us. And we are sorely tried, we say. And what Jesus is saying here is that we are asking, asking the Father that when the time of test comes to us, the trial, the good test, the other one's going to be deliver us from the evil one, but the first part of this petition, that testing that comes, that testing that comes to us uh, when we're sorely tried to not let us to fall at that time, but to keep us close to himself, to keep us close to himself. It's the kind of test that a football coach puts his players through in scrimmage. He's testing them to see who the best people he can put out on the field. Uh, the Boeing 707, uh, one of uh, the men whom I admire very much came from Seattle and used to be a pastor out in the, in, if you live in the Seattle area, practically everyone wor worked or did work for the Boeing aircraft people out there. And when the 707 jet was being tested, that's the one the president flies in. That'll give you a good idea about which ones are safe. Uh, the, the 707 was being tested. And uh, uh, when it was going through its test to receive the Federal Aviation Agency's uh, license as uh, safe and secure to fly in as nearly as they could make it, one of the big things was uh, the, it has great swept wings on it. Some of us have flown all over the world in that thing. And beneath it, those pods, those huge Pratt Whitney engines or Rolls-Royce engines are held on uh, by uh, a brace that holds them into position. And there is one key bolt that holds that in place. And the man whom I'm talking about's friend worked on that one bolt. And he told him that they tested the metal very, very carefully because that airplane was supposed to be put into a dive. And when it came into a dive in a remote area and they redlined it, that is, put it way beyond the stress point and then tried to pull it out, it was designed so that what that whatever engine uh, was put 
to the test before the wing would break off that the engine pod would break away. Now, that doesn't comfort you very much to know that the engine pod might break off. But it's better for the engine pod to break off than it is for the wing to break off. And so it was designed that way. Now, that's putting through a good test for a good reason. And the Lord allows us to go through some tests in life. No one wants to go to sea with a captain that hadn't been in a storm. I remember going to Columbia, South America one time on a banana boat. And, and boy, we got past uh, Haiti and hit the open water, uh, and there were no islands on either side, and we started getting uh, heavy waves that would go clear over the thing. It seemed higher than this chapel. And I wondered if that old boy had ever been through that before, uh, who was running the ship. Uh, I remember one of our sons was with me, and he got flung out of bed at night, and uh, all of the furniture would be every place in the place where we were staying. Well, you learn something through the storms that you go through. Uh, the storms are meant to test you, to teach you, and the Lord permits those things. I remember how shocked I was as a seminary student when I went into the city of Atlanta to hear the great Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Dr. Barnhouse was a man who uh, was never much in doubt about anything. He was a very, very dogmatic uh, man, but he was a very interesting teacher to listen to, and he had a provocative way of teaching that would really grip your attention. And I remember one night when I was listening to Dr. Barnhouse talk about this very thing of testing and temptation. And he said to me, the sweetest words in the whole Bible were spoken by the devil. And I was about half asleep and I jumped up. And I thought, what's that guy talking about? <laughs> the sweetest words in the Bible were spoken by the devil. And then he cited the testing of Job. And then he cited, and go back and look and read the book of Job again. And you'll see that when Satan, the adversary, comes to God to ask for permission to test Job, he says to God, you have built a hedge about him. And that, Dr. Barnhouse said, to me is the sweetest words in the Bible. That he has built a hedge about us. And that he can't get through to test us in this way without permission. And I've thought about that. When the storms of life are raging and harsh tests, disease is a terrible thing. Pain is terrible. Blindness, strokes, crippleness, death, all these things hurt terribly. But the Lord is using them all for his purposes and he wants us. Uh, he wants us to be in line with those purposes too. So there is a test uh, that is meant to try us so that we are made stronger, so that we are more able to cope, and so that we will be better on the field of conflict. And that kind of test is a good test. It's a test that's permitted uh, by the Lord and one that he wants us to know about and to be assured of. You remember Dr. Davis, C. Greer Davis, who was pastor for many, many years at the First Presbyterian Church in Asheville and who was also president of Montreat Anderson College. The other day when my wife's mother died, we received a great many letters. She was a gentle, sweet soul. 
the two most characteristic things about her that I could possibly say was that the key verse of her life was, was uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And also her generous spirit uh, was coupled also with a generous attitude toward other people. Her constant thing used to be, judge not lest ye be judged. And so Dr. Davis wrote these words, and I hope you'll forgive me for being personal, but they're so good they ought to be shared. Dorothy, our hearts are tender towards you in the death of your mother. One is never prepared for separation from one so near and dear. My own mother died in January 1979. She was 96 years of age. She had not been a patient in a hospital until the day before she died. Her five children were born at home, as was the custom. Mama, I love to hear him say that, Mama lived her life within five miles of the farm where she was born. Her sisters live on that farm today. Looking back, I can see clearly that home was the place where Mama lived. The family moved from one house to another while I was away in my sophomore year at Davidson College. I did not return to the old house, but to the, but to the new one. Mama was there. It was home. Now she is in the Father's house. The Savior is there. Papa is there. One day, I shall go home. When Mama died, my sister and I were sad and lonely, but we were also thankful. So we comfort one another in Christ with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For we have, an, we have a house not made with hands, which is eternal in the heavens. And so he is with us in the temptation that comes to us that tries us. Now what about the other temptation? He warned Peter, Simon, Satan, has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan's always sifting because he wants to sift out the good wheat and keep that which is bad in us. The Lord wants to sift out the bad and keep that which is good. And Peter impetuous and impulsive and childlike and just absolutely wonderful. Peter said, Lord, these other people may betray you, but I never will betray you. I am ready to go with you all the way to prison and to death. And you know, I think Jesus must have looked at him and said, oh, Peter, you big-hearted old country boy, I know you want to go with me to prison and to death. And if you could win the whole world with your big mouth, you'd do it. You'd be the greatest of them all. And you'll come through when the test comes. But you don't know how severe it's going to be. But there'll be other tests, and you'll learn from this one. And so he told him, Peter the cock is not going to crow in the morning until you have thrice denied that you even know me. And if you put together the synoptic 
accounts, the three records of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you read what happened, you see Peter's downfall. You see him out there in the garden with Jesus, how Jesus had told them to pray, to pray about temptation. Did you pray this morning that the Lord would keep you from temptation? We ought to make that prayer. Let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. The seeds of evil are in every single one of us. And we need to pray that prayer. Well, Peter went to sleep. He prayed for a while, but he was confused by it all, and he went to sleep. And when he woke up, he heard a crowd coming. And he saw the temple police coming with their swords and their torches. And he yanked out his sword. He was going to be faithful to his Lord. And I've often said he did the wrong thing for the right reason. <laughs> he wanted to defend his Lord. He had, a good, he had a good spirit. He wanted to defend Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need our defense in chopping people's ears off. I've learned that over the years and keep on learning it. A lot of saints that he has to go around patching up that I hack on. Uh, we learn this way. So Peter whacked away at the high priest's servant's ear. And the Lord, in one of the other records of the gospel, uh, tells him, put that thing up, Peter. Put your sword up. And then he reaches down and touches the guy's ear and heals him. Boy, isn't it wonderful that Jesus can heal the mistakes that we make? I don't know if you need an eraser, but I sure do. <laughs> and I need someone to heal the people that I sometimes am not as thoughtful with as I ought to be. And I need to learn from those lessons. Well, Peter was rebuked, and he was smarting under that rebuke when the crowd left that place and started away toward the judgment hall. And he trailed along in back of them, afar off. A lot of sermons been written about Peter following afar off. The only thing I can say is he followed, even if he was far off. And it was a good thing. He followed along, but then he got too close to the enemy's camp. And it's right interesting to watch his denial of the Lord three times. The first denial is so human. Peter was trying to see what was going to happen to Jesus, and he was warming himself by the fire and Caiaphas' courtyard, and some little serving girl, little teenage girl who worked around there, little waitress-like person, uh, said, why, you're, you're with him, that is, with Jesus. And the, the, the Greek is really interesting at this point, because in the original, Peter says something like, huh, what did you say? Did you ever not want to answer a question? Uh, I know how many times I've told my children during the winter, go down to the basement, bring up some firewood, and they say, huh, what did you say? And I say, wait a minute. Now, did you, you know what I said. <laughs> we don't always hear what we want to hear. Uh, Peter heard her, but he didn't want to just barefaced lie about it at that point, so he said, huh, what did you say? Uh, kind of a testimony at half mass. And uh, then... A little more boldly, someone else comes up and says to him, Why, you were with him. You got that Galilean hick accent. 
we know you were with him. And Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he moves around a little more. And then finally, Mark, who got his information from Peter, tells us that another person came and directly accused him and said, I saw you with him. And he used the salty language that he hadn't used since he was a fisherman. He cursed and swore and said, may I be damned if I've ever heard his name. And when he was in the middle of that cursing, the cock crew. And he must have heard that cock crow at that time. And he turned and looked. And the Lord looked at him. And he realized that Jesus had heard the dirty words that he had said in denying him. And Peter went out into the darkness and wept bitterly. I think that the beloved apostle John must have followed him out in the darkness to wherever he went to assure him of Jesus' love, or Peter would have been in the pits of despair. We all know that later, later Jesus sends a special message to Peter when he is risen from the dead. He gives him a special revelation of himself. And we all know that at Pentecost, Peter is the one who stands up in front of the great persecutors of Jesus and preaches boldly and powerfully. And we see thousands converted to Christ. We know that even his shadow uh, has a healing power about it. And we see great miracles performed through him. And we know from later study that he died at his own request, head down in the city of Rome because he had denied his Lord. Well, you see, Jesus told him to pray, to pray that he entered not into temptation. But now the lesson for us today is this. We pray that we may be delivered from the evil one who tempts us into sin. And what are the practical lessons for us? Stay close to Jesus. Take action to avoid the kind of people that will lead you into sin, that will make it easy for you to do what's wrong. Get rid of the books that will make it easier for you to go against the things your master stands for. Clean up the appetites that are wrong, that would hurt you in your testimony for Jesus Christ. Holiness seems to be forgotten in this heyday of evangelical Christianity, when you got three, three presidential candidates all claiming to be born again, John Anderson, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan. Okay, what about holiness? We need a revival of that. We need a revival of that because there hasn't been any corresponding wave of holiness across this country. Old Vance Havner was over at Ben Lippin this last week and he said he used to say that the country was going to the dogs, but he quit saying it because it was an insult to the dogs. That people are doing things that no self-respecting dog would do. And he's saying a lot of truth. We need a revival of holiness. And so we need this prayer. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one. Martin Luther wants us to know 
God indeed tempts no one, but we pray in this petition that God would guard us and keep us so that the devil, the world, and the flesh may not deceive us nor seduce us into misbelief and despair and other great shame and vice. And though we be assailed by them, that still we may finally overcome and obtain victory. And so that's where we want to be. We want to be overcomers with the Lord. I put a little line from John Bunyan, who had a, he was a mechanical theologian, a layman. Layman can put things so much better than preachers. Temptation, when we meet them first, or as the lion that roared upon Samson, if we overcome the temptation, the next time we see them, we shall find a nest of honey within them.